Hey guys, a quick announcement up top. Matt Brake, who did the second March patron-only bonus episode on theology and pop culture, this Friday is going to do an Ask Me Anything thread in the You Have Permission Facebook discussion group. Uh, I just rewatched The Dark Knight this week, and I thought about Matt like 10 times, and uh, I thought about our conversation, and there's so much in there. So I will craft a couple questions for him about The Dark Knight for that AMA thread. Uh, You do have to be a patron to have access to that Facebook group. I apologize for those of you who don't want to be patrons or can't afford it right now. Um, If you can't afford it, email me, by the way. We'll, We'll work it out. Uh, But that's this Friday. Now, this is another one of those episodes that is on both the You Have Permission and the Depolarize feed Uh, for a little bit more on how and why and what each of these shows are. Just go back to the intro for the Resist the Mob episode from a few weeks ago. You can get more info there. Now, I did record this interview a while ago, assuming that it would be only a Depolarize episode because at that point, You Have Permission did not exist yet. So maybe once or twice I speak as if we're doing a Depolarize episode, but it's just too good and too relevant to only put in the Depolarize feed. In my mind, this interview is basically magic. Now, to the title of the episode, you have permission to acknowledge evangelicalism's racial blind spot, or for Depolarize listeners, evangelicals racial blind spot is the name of the episode. Uh, Some of you might think, what blind spot? Well, if you keep listening, uh, you'll find out. And I encourage you to. Um, Michael is not a mean guy. This is not a gotcha kind of a conversation. Uh, I hope that you will be intrigued by what he has to say. Others of you, all the other way to the other side, might think, of course the blind spot is there. And I I sure hope we can do more than simply acknowledge it. Well, this interview is about more than simple acknowledgement. It is about understanding, deep understanding. So if you keep listening, you will understand this issue so much better than you do now, unless you've already read Divided by Faith, I guarantee that. And the argument that Dr. Emerson lays out is basically from his book, Divided by Faith, co-authored with sociologist Christian Smith, and it is by far the best explanation for this phenomenon that I have come across. I am positively giddy, to be able to share this with you, if you can't tell that by now, I don't know what you're doing. Michael O. Emerson is a sociologist. He is provost of North Park University in Chicago, the author of many books, most of them having to do with race and faith. And he just gave me one of the best interviews I have ever been a part of. I hope you find it as helpful as I did. Here we go. So, Dr. Emerson, can we start with a little bit of autobiography? Just in your own story, how did you come to be interested in the topic of race in America and then subsequently in its overlap with evangelical Christianity? Part of my own life story is I got a fairly direct message from God, maybe the only time I've ever gotten a direct message from God, that said, until I tell you otherwise, you and your family shall live as the racial minority. And he had to show us what that meant. First of all, that meant we had to move and change neighborhoods. And I'll tell you, total and utter culture shock at first, but introduced us to it in a completely new world, a new way of understanding, new cultural tools. 
Yeah, I should be a perfect candidate to care about race in America growing up in uh, Cocado, Minnesota, population 1,700 people, right, <laughs> where everybody was Scandinavian. <laughs> uh, but I think growing up there, we did, actually did have an interesting ethnic divide. You were either Finnish or you were not Finnish, and that meant you had separate churches. Huh. You used uh, restaurants at different times. You had separate friends. So a lot of what we'll talk about today I, I saw growing up. Then when I went to college in uh, Chicago, I was introduced rather starkly to the racial divides that exist. So I think those things in juxtaposition with coming to faith at age 17, combining with these experiences happening at the same time, probably led to what it is I do. So I don't want to spend a ton of time on the inequality itself, but let's at least motivate this conversation what are a few salient statistics that sort of most clearly lay bare the actual socioeconomic gap between white and black America? Sure. And let's just talk about two because they rhyme, wealth and health. So, you know, we think about jobs and we know we have inequality in the type of jobs and how much money we make in our income. But what really matters is how much wealth access do we have? So wealth is everything I own minus everything I owe. And here we see stark, stark differences. So when we first started looking at this in the 80s and having really good measures, whites had about 10 times the wealth of African-Americans and Hispanics at that time. It's actually grown and continued to grow so that we're closer to 20 to 1. So if you think about that, for every $100 of wealth that whites have, blacks, African-Americans, Hispanics have $5. That really shapes what you can do in life, including with how you can get health coverage and health care when you need it. So the end result is that whites live several years longer than do other people in the United States. And and just to kind of fill this out a bit, you know, so I own my home. I don't own the whole home, right? I only own a portion of it. The bank owns a lot of it. My wife and I joke that actually spiders seem to own the outside of the home. But <laughs> if I wanted to start a business or something, I have some equity in that home and I can leverage that. I could get a loan on that. I go, I really believe in myself. I've got a lot of information here that this product is going to sell. But man, I need $20,000 right now to get this off the ground. Well, no problem. I go, I get the $20,000. If I don't have that equity, if I don't have that, that has nothing to do with my income. That is my assets, right? That's right. And and and, and so it's no surprise then that we see that white start businesses at a higher rate than African-Americans do. So you can say, gee, African-Americans, why don't you start more businesses? Well, that's one reason. No access to the capital needed. Right. You mentioned that those numbers have actually gotten worse because I've been reading this book that you wrote. It came out in 2000. You co-authored it with Christian Smith. It's called Divided by Faith. It is fantastic. I It's blowing my mind and it's short. It's like the perfect <laughs> book. It's like you did... I'll tell you why I think it's a perfect book. Number one, it's short. Number two, it's clearly written. And number three, you did your own original research. So it isn't just like you rehashing a bunch of things that someone else might have rehashed better or worse than you. You guys actually did the work. And even though it's now 18 years old, uh, I could pretty much tell from the beginning that it doesn't read like it is. Has Much hasn't changed, right, since those days. Yeah, it, it really hasn't. And I, I mean... I wish I could say it has, and I often will say now when I speak, I wish we could put this book out of commission that people would stop buying it because it was passe, but it just hasn't reached that point yet. Now, uh, you focus on black-white relations in America in that book. 
you don't focus on white Asian relations or black Asian relations. Can you explain to us why you guys chose that particular group? Yeah, the the fundamental racial divide in this nation is white black. So we often say they're the bookends of the racial system in the U.S. It's a racial system that largely excludes Native Americans from even being on the bookshelf and then asks all the other groups to find their place somehow between these bookends in this system. So the black-white gulf is one that measures wider and deeper and then the history is much longer. You know, sometimes people who want to be critical of research like yours will point to Asian Americans as if to say, well, look, it's not the fact that they're a different race that makes them better or worse or economically, you know, more successful or whatever. But isn't sort of the point of your work to say precisely that it isn't the race. It is the fact that this particular racial group has had these things stacked against them. And this other group has had different things, but not the same. It's exactly it. And even if you think about just think about arriving here, African-Americans overwhelmingly as being enslaved coming here with nothing. Asian-Americans, because of our immigration laws, especially since the mid 60s, when since when most Asians have arrived here, we only take the best and the brightest. You have to be well educated or have enough money. And I mean, you're set up to succeed because we're only taking the economically successful largely. Right. And the only real exceptions to that are like, you know, at the end of the Vietnam War or something like that. But right. Some refugees. and Yeah. But by far, most Asians who come here, they disproportionately have master's degrees, for instance. Yeah. The highest educated group in the U.S. is are Asians. And that's partly by design in who we select to be able to immigrate here. Yes. So the book, I'll, I'll say how much I love it a million times, but the central thesis of the book is that white evangelicals do express a true desire to end racial division and inequality. And they act according to those desires. So they act in the way they think they ought to act to end racial division and inequality. But when they do act that way, they end up making the situation worse. Now, it's a fairly complicated argument. There's many moving parts. But can you start us with just like a 30,000-foot overview of how that argument works? Sure. And I, I imagine we'll discuss this in more detail later. But the argument really has two overarching components. One, what I call the cultural tools of evangelicals. And then when you combine that with the organization of religion, which is really into racially homogenous congregations, that these things interact to produce outcomes that work against the stated goal. So the methods to arrive at solutions that are that that are proposed and acted upon in the end don't work because they're too one-sided actually to address the full problem. So in setting up this argument, you guys make it clear that you are arguing against two really commonly held views. Number one is that racial problems persist because of essentially individually racist people doing bad things. And then you also argue against kind of a liberal idea that racial problems persist because the group in power does whatever they can to defend their power. We might say that's a Foucaultian kind of power grab view. Michel Foucault, philosopher, I don't know when he wrote I just try not to name drop without explaining who I'm talking <laughs> about. He wanted to say largely that uh, most things are about power and power is mostly inherently a bad thing. Yeah. So you argue against 
both of those. Can you can you speak to each of those uh, common views that it's just a bunch of individual racists or it's just a group holding on to power? Yeah, when you look at the history of the U.S. and how race gets expressed, it actually couldn't work just on individuals expressing whatever race, racist views they hold. What had to happen was you had to institutionalize it, and we did thoroughly. We put it into our laws. We created things like slavery and codes that made sure we lived in separate neighborhoods. And we put in uh, voting rights rules and things that would constantly create inequality between groups. Separate but equal school places of education. We can go on and on. So there's you just can't sustain a kind of society we ended up with just by individual choice. And and even, you know, back in 1820, nobody would have argued that a bunch of individual choices were the cause of slavery. They would have said, no, slavery is a God-ordained institution. It's an institution. Yes. It's the way it ought to be. It sustains our economy. Even back then, no one would have said this is about individual prejudice. Yeah, which is such an interesting thing that even in the what we might say is the height of it, people recognize what was going on and slavery was an institution. Absolutely. OK, so as you mentioned, you know, on the other side and the easy answer, and I hear this all the time and I see it illustrated, is to say, hey, white evangelicals, they're they're super racist. They're not just racist. They're they're like this incredibly racist group that uses their religion as a clever cover for the racism. And the purpose is to maintain white dominance. Now, I, I walk in these evangelical spaces and have for many decades. I know people deeply and across the country. And are there out and out racially prejudiced individuals? Absolutely. I've met them. I'm sure you've met them. But there's no way the majority, most folks aren't spending their time at all thinking, how do I keep my white racial dominance? I mean, they're not even thinking they're white. If you ask people, what's it like to be white or tell me what it means to be white, they don't know how to answer that. They get very uncomfortable with that. So what then? What, what's going on? And let me give you an example of, of Trump here. As, as you probably have heard and many of your listeners heard, over 80% of white evangelicals voted for him, despite what we could say is pretty clear evidence that he's not led a life consistent with evangelical understandings of right living. So why would they vote for him? The simplistic and what I think is the wrong answer is because white evangelicals are super racist and they want Trump to uphold their racist views and make America white again. I think that's far too simplistic and incorrect. And that's part of what the book is arguing, even though obviously it was written before Trump was in the picture. I think a more accurate understanding is that white evangelicals, you know, at this point are existing in a, what they would see as a vortex of threat to their subculture. Gay marriage was legalized the year before this election. Religious freedom seemed to be being tossed to the wind. Religious organizations were being required to offer health care coverage that often would directly challenge their religious values. So we can go on and on with those things. So they see a person who says, if you elect me, I'll appoint judges who will value religious freedom. I'll defend Christians. While the other candidate wasn't saying this. So given the choice, given the cultural tools, and given their social isolation from racial problems, which we'll probably get into more later. We will. They had different priorities, and those priorities led them to vote for Donald Trump. That's great. So rather than keep going on the Trump thing, I'm just going to leave that there as a kind of a thesis statement for how this is going to connect. And then as we get through more of the arguments of the book, I think that will get filled out in people's minds. So there's a big factor 
in the history of evangelicalism and how evangelicals have interacted politically with the rest of the country and, and with politicians and with laws. And you guys focus on this a bunch in the book. And it's basically this drive within evangelicalism, which I'm very familiar with having grown up evangelical, to save the souls of the lost. And all kinds of things over the years have been permitted or downplayed to maintain access to the souls of the lost, to make this possibility more likely. Can you walk us through some some examples of that, both from history or from today, how it related to slavery, all that stuff? Yeah, so the, the need to save souls is so pervasive, it's so front and center, that pretty much any other issue takes a back seat to it. And, I mean, and it's in the term, right? We, evangelical, that's, that's the main right. responsibility. So if there are other issues that are perceived to threaten the ability to save souls, either by taking the focus off of saving souls or by taking one's time or rocking the cultural boat too much, that such efforts would be clamped down upon, then those issues are not prioritized, no matter how right they may seem to to anybody. So that that's it. That's important to say. Now, it's in the conjunction of, again, social location. So we'll use the example of slavery here. So, you know, white Christian arguments at the time were that slavery actually was an institution that helped the cause of saving souls. It brought people who otherwise may not have contact with to the U.S. It allowed this direct contact and it allowed white Christians to be able to do direct preaching and sharing of the gospel. And folks who otherwise might have remained heathen all their life, was the argument, became Christian and will have an eternal salvation. That makes it worth it, the slavery. But of course, you can only make that argument if, I think, if slavery is not directly hurting you, right? If you have the social location that you don't suffer from it, because it would be hard to find many slaves, though we did find some because they became convinced. But for most slaves, they would say, it's not a good thing that to become a Christian means I'm not only free for the opportunity of eternal life, but I ought to be free in this world too. So their social location gives them a different interpretation of what matters. I honestly think that there are a lot of people today that would have heard what you just said and go, I understand that slavery was bad, but heaven's better than hell. Yeah. How do you, how do you respond to someone who has that maybe understandable intuition? I, first of all, heaven is better than hell, but we don't need, I, it would be hard to find in the Bible where God says, let's have unjust earthly systems on behalf of people's souls being saved. You don't need those. Our job is partly to help others be led to Christ, but you certainly don't have to have any need for these kind of negative earthly institutions. And in fact, the other job clearly in the Bible is to work for justice, for righteousness on this earth. Are there examples today of issues that get sidelined for the sake of having access to the souls of the lost? Yeah, I think it's endless. I mean, <laughs> we're talking about race in America and race gets sidelined. I mean, I, I get invited to speak a lot of places and that's always the pushback. Why are we focusing on this? This really is just a kind of a, it could either be called a politically correct issue or it's a social issue, but it is diverting us. This is like a devil's tactic to divert us from our real work. We're going to get into that more in, in a bit. You talked about how it's hard to find slaves 
that bought into this mentality, but there are some, and and some of their words have been written down. They really did buy into this theological view that God wished them to be slaves. That was God's plan so that they could be there and become Christians. <laughs> when you read the accounts, this is pretty shattering that anybody could have internalized that. It seems important to talk about it. Can Can you tell us some of these examples or, or sort of read back some of what they would say or, or how they thought of themselves? Yeah, so this is interesting because at this time, the the preaching they hear and the teaching they hear are overwhelmingly from white Christians, white preachers, who are teaching that to them. And as they come to accept Christ, they adopt those views as well, because here's a person who seemingly knows the truth, is sharing it with them, and that's included as part of the truth. So they do. use. You can find all kinds of writings about this. And then you also start finding some of these initial slave converts teaching that to more slaves and next generations. Right, right. Let's, let's focus on a bright spot for a moment. Tell us about Charles Finney mm. and why he's important to this discussion. Yeah, okay. So let's put that in context. So in the North in the 1830s, Keep in mind that this is now a land where there's no longer legalized slavery. And we get a new breed of abolitionists that arise. And Charles Finney is really the leader of this. He's the leader example. He's moted by, he's an evangelical. He is uh, a pastor. He is motivated by the evangelical zeal to save souls. But he he is wholeheartedly anti-abolitionist. I mean, he is against slavery. He's an abolitionist. So he actually provides a theological framework for anti-slavery that fits within evangelical understanding. Uh, and part of this is that he says God calls us to actually devote ourselves to social reform. In addition to saving souls, we have to do this social reform, kind of their term for what we might say social justice today. And he brings this revivalist impulse for opposition to slavery. So he and his protégés actually would go around the country doing evangelical-type revival meetings where they would spread the word. They were Their attempt was to win converts to the cause, complete with the climax of the tent meetings being an altar call to join the anti-slavery movement. And he cast Christianity as having to include anti-slavery. If you're going to be a true disciple, you'd be anti-slavery. And he acted on these tenets. He would not allow slaveholders, for example, to take communion. Something tells me that this example of Charles Finney is not going to be an exemplar of the average evangelical leader as we get into slavery and the debates about slavery. Is that a, a correct fear? Yeah, it ultimately so interesting doesn't win the day. And in fact, Charles Finney himself eventually steps back from his involvement because, and it's what we talked about already, his primary purpose is we must save souls. And a new breed of the abolitionists that arose, taking his evangelical zeal, but not necessarily themselves evangelicals, became in his mind, they made that two front and center, that everything was about abolition and not about Christ. And so he himself started backing away, as did other evangelicals. Mm. Okay, so there's like a, a centuries long, or at least a century debate that goes on in America about slavery, and some of that is theological and some of it is social. Where, in your mind, from a historical theological perspective, where do we start to see the kinds of arguments being made publicly? 
who are the ancestors of sort of a modern day evangelical approach to social issues and souls and whatnot? Yeah, and it's been interesting because it's ebbed and flowed a bit, but we start seeing those really around the turn of the 18th century and this kind of move to an individual focus, which we have, we'll talk some more about, but you save souls, you know, one heart at a time. We often will use that phrase that starts coming into being. There was a period where there was this interest in social reform and it has something to do with theology, right? We don't want to get into too much detail, but when will Christ come back, right? Premillennial, millennial, etc. So there was some debate there, but ultimately the, the beliefs and the what we are supposed to be doing is shaping through the entire 18th century. But what happens at the end of slavery is actually very pivotal, which is until that point, blacks and whites were actually sharing congregations, often worshiping loosely together. They're in separate spaces, but they're hearing the same sermon and things like that. But at that point, African-Americans believe now we can be accepted on equal footing in white churches. They quickly found out they would not be. And so they went and started their own congregations. This is the point at which then we start to get what we see today, which is major levels of segregation and separation. So let me put it back into this, though. Even evangelicals, even those who were abolitionists, they were wanting slavery to end. But they weren't to the point. And this includes Abraham Lincoln, right, who's ultimately responsible for signing that slavery ends. He did not himself believe that we could live on equal footing, that whites and blacks were equal. So they end slavery, but they still believe in racial inequality, or at least they don't work to end racial inequality. And they come to accept segregation as this is really going to be the best answer for how we can live in the same society. And I'm already starting to see a parallel here. It's it's an early prototype version of let's not bring up Kaepernick and the race thing because it's just going to get in the way of the gospel. Yes. I can, where I work, we had chapel yesterday and we shared the Kaepernick uh, new Nike ad and several people got up and walked out. It was during a chapel service trying to show how divided we are. (laughs) And they just, even to show it was offensive to them. Hmm. What is it about evangelicalism that makes it, or, or evangelical culture, I should say, what is it about that culture that is so focused on individuals? Is this a theological artifact turned social? Is it social turned theological? When we trace the history, what, what seems most likely? I describe it in the book as that we took a theology and a, a burgeoning new society of the U.S. and that we combined those ingredients so well, it was like a smoothly blended soup that we could ladle out of that. And when anytime we ladle out of that, we're ladling both our religious understandings, but also it's mixed with American understandings. Mm. And American understandings are built on this idea that we are all individuals with individual liberty and individual justice. So that becomes the focus of American evangelicalism, which of course has since spread elsewhere through missionaries and such, but that's really the root of it. Okay, that sounds good to me, but how can you actually quantify this? Like, is there survey data that shows these worldview differences in terms of individual, systemic, et cetera? 
Yeah, so that was one of our challenges, right? And that's why we created our own measures to see is this, if this is the case, then we ought to be able to actually measure it. So I'll give one example. We asked Americans of all sorts, random samples, to explain racial inequality. Why is there racial inequality? So we would list what the racial inequality is and say, why do you think that is? And evangelicals, particularly white evangelicals, far more than other Americans said, the reason is, and they would give individual level explanations. Things like people don't work hard enough, or there's lack of motivation, or a lack of understanding, or it could always be tied back to an individual. What, okay, so what could be a counterpoint? What we found was much more common among other Americans, even other white Americans, were explanations like, well, there's unequal access to quality education by race, or there's actual systematic discrimination in our schools and our workplaces. Those are the kinds of things we really did not hear from white evangelicals. So we were able to quantify that. There are some kind of remarkable passages in some of these interviews where some of these evangelical respondents who seem like quite good people, we should say, they almost short circuit when you try and get them to explain anything that goes beyond an individual case. Can you talk about that or maybe even share an anecdote? When people would give us individual explanations, we, after a while, kept hearing this. We wanted to see what would happen if we suggested something that was more systematic. What would they do with that? So we would say something like, um, do you see the racial problem mostly as between individuals or maybe be something systematic like unequal access to education? And then they would almost always respond, it's between individuals. So if we would say, cite something like, uh, again, staying with the education example, that you know the average African-American grammar school has this many resources, the average white grammar school has this much resources, and of course there's a big disparity, why do you think that is? They either just, like you said, short circuit, like, I just can't think that way, or they would convert it back into individual, like something like, well, maybe the principals in the black schools aren't working as hard or don't care as much for their students. Huh. They just didn't have a category. It's almost like a language without a word for something. That's right. And so that's why we use this concept in the book of cultural tools that, right, we give, we're given a toolbox that from our culture that helps us interpret a very complicated world. And being a evangelical, and that it depends if you're white or black, you get a different set of tools, but you use those tools. So when you're forced to, like if you're never given a hammer and I give you a nail and say, do something with it, you know, if you have the, if you have a hammer, you know exactly what to do with it. But if you never had a hammer, you, you just look at the thing. You're not sure what it's for. <laughs> yeah, I think of, <laughs> this is kind of a nerdy example, but like in Westworld, you know, they have these robots. And if the if the robots in Westworld see certain things that they haven't been coded for, they literally don't see them. Like their perceptual experience is that there is not a person there. But yeah, there's a person yeah. there that they're not coded to be able to recognize. And of course, humans are a bit more malleable than the robots in the sci-fi show, but it does seem to be a, a fitting analogy. Absolutely. That's right. Yep. That we it literally shapes what we see and don't see. So before we go through the three tools that you highlight, three cultural tools that you highlight, I want to ask a, a, a larger question, which is you've mentioned now at least once that white evangelicals are the most individualistic in their answers, even more than other white Americans who are not evangelical. What do you think explains that overemphasis on individuality 
or that highest emphasis on individuality in that subgroup? Yeah. So white evangelicalism in the United States is like, in some ways, I would say hyper-Americanism because of that combining of evangelicalism being brought at the very time that we're forming a new kind of society, a new way of understanding people. So that in some ways, I actually say this in the book, you could almost argue that white evangelicals are, uh, you know, the ultimate example of Americans. <laughs> They're, they take those kind of American values to the extreme. Some of them might agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> you go to one of those like one of those like America Israel conventions or something with the dual yes. flags. And I think they might they might agree. Is right. So since individualism is so fundamental to this society, it becomes intensified when you combine it with a religious understanding, with actual theology behind that. So that's what we say. Evangelicalism often intensifies some of the characteristics of what America was founded on. So most of you know I do this thing called Patreon. It's a way for listeners to support my podcasting work financially, but it's also an excuse for me to have a bunch of even more wide-ranging conversations than I tend to have for this show. And I do two of these bonus episodes each month for patrons only. Now, the second of these for March 2019 is a conversation with my friend Matt Brake, or his scholarly name Matthew William Brake, about theology and pop culture, movies, TV shows, comic books. Matt has been publishing in this world for years and is currently overseeing two book series published by serious theological houses. Here are some clips from my talk with Matt. Batman is the one who says, okay, I'm going to violate people's privacy to do this surveillance system in order to do what's necessary. Interesting. Um, Harvey Dent talks about it at the beginning of... um, of the movie when he says, you know, the Romans had a, had a rule where if, uh, if the enemies of Rome were at the gate, they would suspend parliamentary or senatorial power and imbue one person with the powers they needed to, to win. And then you end up with this problem. It's like, okay, well the last person to do that didn't give the power back. And so Caesar, right. Chosenness and election are scandalous ideas and yet they appear there. Um, and you have this thing, you see some people seeing their chosenness as a sign that their lives matter more than others. Uh, other times you see that chosenness is something you, you're chosen in order to serve and prevent the spread of evil by being a caretaker of the island. There are oppressed, largely people of color all around the world and even in our own world. And you have to wonder about the half measures of liberalism the sort of good enough, better than the alternatives of liberalism and how unsatisfying that is going to be to people, Um, particularly, you know, from the lens of a liberation theology that kind of looks at that and goes, you know, God is on the side of the oppressed, man. Like your status quo is not in his interest. (laughs) In a way, Wakanda can do that. And in a way, it's it's separate for so long that it can now emerge on the world scene as an equal uh, in a way that no... African or black nationalist power has been able to do. We did this series at our church for a while. It actually was one of the reasons our church collapsed, but um, on how in the Hunger Games, America is the empire, is the capital. Interesting. And how, and how we live off the resources of 
other people in the world and act oppressively and like are sort of blind to our own privilege. Um, and you're saying that that ended a church that surprises me so much. Matt. <laughs> <Did> <laughs> people didn't well. want to hear that. No, no, you got to take care of your own kids, man, because they're the least of these. Even though when Jesus says the least of these, he means not your own family. In fact, he specifically says, if you're just nice to your own family, you're no better than the average Joe. Yeah. In a disenchanted world, it might get us to actually think about a re-enchantment of the world. Interesting. Um, which is kind of my hope for some of this stuff, especially when you get a writer like Grant Morrison who incorporates his own um, sort of esoteric, Gnostic, neo-pagan spirituality into his comics, and it makes for interesting storytelling. Um even though a lot of it makes me uncomfortable because I was raised in a world where you didn't read Harry Potter because Satan. Yeah, right. Yeah, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. But at the very least, I want to re-enchant the world in a materialistic age that doesn't see religion as a live option, as something to be seriously considered as having truth value. Huh. And, I'm okay, and I'm okay doing that as a person within a tradition, inviting other people within their own traditions to contribute. Because at the very least, we learn about each other in that process, which is necessary for our interactions in the public sphere. So if that sounded interesting to you, then you should become a patron. Patreon.com slash Dan Koch, or youhavepermissionpod.com. Click become a patron. Reminder, Matt is doing an Ask Me Anything on the Facebook group, which is for patrons only. All things theology and pop culture but also anything Kierkegaard, because he's a Kierkegaard scholar if you want. So join us. That's this Friday. Now we are going to get back to Michael O. Emerson, and we're just getting to like the juicy part of their argument. I love it so much. Here's my chat with Michael. Okay, so let's get to this. These three tools in the social toolkit or cultural toolkit that you you talk about. There's accountable free will individualism. That's the most complicated. Yeah. Relationalism and anti-structuralism. Can we go one one at a time and just can you give us a brief summary of what those mean? Yeah. And and for listeners, just keep in mind. Just think of a toolbox, and in that toolbox, you essentially have just three main tools, and you've learned how to solve most any issue with those tools and it's just a matter of which one and sometimes you'll use a combination of them. Right. So yeah, the complicated named one, accountable free will individualism. Let's take the term individualism. We've been talking about that. We start with that fundamental assumption that the root of all humanity and human society is the individual. It's not the group. And if you're steeped in this culture, you're like, what is this guy talking about? Can there really be societies that think the the most fundamental aspect of a society is a group? Of course there are. That's the more common in the world. We're actually one of the exceptions that think it's the individual. Now, what's the accountable free will part? So that's where the actual theology part is mixed in with this individual Mm -hmm. understanding. We, because we are created by God, we have free will to either choose to follow God or not. God is not going to force us, but we are accountable. So we make that choice, and then there will be an accounting of that choice. That's the first tool. The second tool is related to that. If individuals are the foundation, and the foundation of the faith is a relationship between the individual and Christ, that's how right. we're saved. Yes. 
We call that relationalism, but that gets extended and transposed to understanding the world. And if that's the fundamental religious understanding, then that's the fundamental way we understand the world too. That's about relationships, one person and a second person. Yeah, like one to one relationships, basically. Yep, one to one, as opposed to social webs or something. That's right. Yep. So then, this next tool almost is like created out of the first two, which is if those two are true. The third one is almost has to be, which is anti-structuralism, anti-systems, the understanding that those things, if we talk about systems of oppression or things, th those have to be false because they imply something larger than individuals and relationships between those individuals. So let's see if we can make some concrete use of those three things in conjunction. One of the examples you guys talk about a lot in the book, and and this does date it to having mostly been written in like 98 and 99, is Promise Keepers, which yep. was a massive movement back then. And you have these men, these men of different races, weeping with each other, starting small groups that continue for years after the initial stadium event. How do they use those three tools? So let's say I'm a white evangelical. I've got those tools. I go to Promise Keepers. I meet a, a black brother in Christ. I love him. I'm in touch. I'm thinking this is a real problem. Walk me through how I'm limited by those three tools or what I think I can do and what I can't do. Right. So there's awakening that happens in the in the movements like Promise Keepers to what exactly you said. Race is, it really is a problem. I, I'm seeing it now. Oh, my word. We need to do something about it. As a Christian... I, I'm totally motivated. I am called to do something about it. So I go to my tool chest and I pull out my tools. And my answer is I need to bring more people to Christ. So the part of the race problem is that we aren't Christian because if we're Christian, then the problem will start going away. Yep. I need to make a friend across race. That's part of the main issue that we we're, we're, we're relationally broken. So make a friend across race. And those become my main answers. I really pretty much stop there. Because the anti-structuralism will not permit you to do much more than just one-to-one -one stuff. It won't. And it, it does even more. It not only won't permit me, it doesn't allow me to even think in those terms. It immediately takes me to the answers I just gave. And I really, even if, again, like if I su someone suggested to me another path, like maybe you form a group to uh, fight unequal incarceration or something that just sounds like voodoo nothingness like that would be such a waste of time and not address the real problem this is not really a pushback question or a devil's advocate but it's something i'm curious about what you think something we've talked about on this show a lot especially last season is the idea of parallel institutions that have been set up in evangelical circles so for instance you know media like music and films news sources, curriculums, schools, church activities as a social nexus, even all the way down to Christian romance novels where mm -hmm. instead of steamy sex, it's, you know, the, the widowed pastor and there's a chaste, chaste love affair. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> their walk with God is, is showing. Um, how do you think that these parallel institutions relate to your own research? Because on the surface, we would say, well, they should never have done any institutions at all, maybe. You know, we we might be tempted to say this is this is a counterexample to anti-structuralism. These are structures, but that's not what you mean by structures, is it? No, not at all. Right. So if 
the world's fallen, so we just have to separate from the world. So we do that by creating our own spaces, our segregated spaces. And I'm not trying to put a judgment on whether that's good or bad. I'm just saying that's what happened. And that's, what, of course, what we mean by parallel institutions. Uh, we're not thinking in terms of structures there at all. We're thinking right. of our children, yeah, right? But so what's sort of interesting is that really, if you think about it in the book, we're saying within that parallel set of institutions, we've created parallel, parallel institutions, white, black, because all these things, they're separate music, huh. white, black, separate films, separate publishing houses and on and on. Oh, that's fascinating. <laughs> so actually what happened is not that evangelicals set up an evangelical parallel institution. It's that white evangelicals and black evangelicals set up two separate parallel institutions that neither connected to the secular world nor to each other. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. Oh, wow. I have not thought of it that way. I love this thought experiment or extended analogy, whatever you want to call it, in the book of the two friends going to these two different fat camps to lose weight. Can you walk us through that thought experiment and, and what it's designed to show us? Right. So here we're – the question of how can there be inequality other than – individual. We're trying to say how the cultural tools may not allow us to see what actually is. And so I'm using this parable to illustrate that. So we start with two friends, we call them Meridell and Parker, and they're both overweight to a degree that is truly affecting their health. So they, they agree to go to this weight loss camp, which is in a rural area of their state. They each are going to try to lose 40 pounds it's a six-week program. It's designed to do to help them do that. Great. So they go. What they don't know is actually we have a quite unethical uh, camp here, and it really it's a research lab. And they're trying to study <laughs> yeah. the effects of various diets and exercise programs. And by and the way, I love that sport. you guys posit that the research part is the unethical part <laughs> in your book. <laughs> in your book, full of sociological research, I did get a kick out of that, making yourselves basically. Uh, the evil geniuses in the story, but go on. So they don't know that they're actually, they, it's like a test where they think they're being tested on this, but they're being tested on something else. That's right. right. So Meridel gets the treatment you would think, which is she's got all the exercise equipment you need. She's given the very best, most healthy food. She's gets support every day. People come by to encourage her and to help demonstrate how to eat healthy. They have videos for her, everything you could imagine. And Every week we say there's a weigh in and she just keeps losing weight as you'd expect. But Parker, again, because we're in this unethical experiment, is given all the exact opposites, given a very cramped place. Instead of healthy food, they just stock it with the M&Ms and the different kinds of candy. He is given no support. He doesn't have workable exercise equipment on and on. So when he goes to weigh, they go to weigh together. He keeps actually adding a little bit of weight each time. And Meridel is just stunned. And and in the parable, you know, she grows more and more frustrated with him to the point she's like, Parker, if you don't care about your own health, if you don't care to lose weight, there's nothing I can do for you. I just have to go my own way. I can't be held back by you. And the point is that because she doesn't consider there might be an actually different reality, a different system impacting his behavior, all she can see is his behavior she comes to a wrong conclusion. Yeah, in the to fill that a little bit, they they come together every few weeks, right? But they don't 
ever see each other in their own camp. They only are there for the weigh in, basically. That's it. They see each other that couple minutes once a week. That's right. Right. And that is akin to the way that we might, you know, what do I know about an inner city Chicago family's life? I have a couple minutes at the weigh in, a news clip or something, right? Uh, a news clip. I, I met, I have a friend I see once in a while or I had an acquaintance. Yeah. That's what it's meant to illustrate. One of the things that that does illustrate for me is something that I think is is sort of obviously true now that I've thought about it for a while, which is that success in America for an individual person, of course, there are individual factors. There is personal responsibility there. You know, you can create habits for yourself. You can get rid of bad habits. You can certainly put yourself in certain situations or others. But there's also a very pervasive network of resources that you either do or don't have. Something I did not think about for seven years while I toured the world in a rock band making $8,000 a year was that if anything had gone wrong, if I had shattered my arm and couldn't play for a year while I recovered, I could stay at my parents' house. I mean, I there was nothing that could have happened short of death that would have actually ruined my life. Even if I had to quit the band, I, you know, whatever, I had plenty of family, friends and connections and I would go finish, you know, I could, I would have been fine. I had total freedom as a 23 year old to just try this. Yeah. And that's because of the networks that I had. Can you talk about webs of relationship and, and networks of social capital and resources? So I'm, every, I think we all agree that that's there. What is it that evangelicals think about those things is maybe my question. Largely, they don't think about those things, at least when they're thinking about other people. I often see like when we're thinking about our children, we care about who their friends are. We care about what kind of school they're in. We care about what kind of neighborhood we're in because we think it will affect. But we often then short circuit at that point and don't think that affects other people or that those should never be the predominant because Predominant is, you know, my internal drive, my ambition should overcome anything. And I've had people directly tell me that. I'll give you a quick illustration of, you know, all of this stuff kind of compounds and, and overlaps. I had actually, a, I've got a PhD African-American woman professor here where I work, very successful. And she came with a really earnest question to me, which she just didn't understand. She said, how do white people save money? How do they have wealth? Because she said, is it that they just turn their back on their family and on their neighbors in need? Interesting. What she was... The answer is yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. For me anyway. Part, yeah. I mean, what she's illustrating though, right, as we're talking about it is too, that if we're hanging out with a web of, of white folks who on average have 20 times the wealth, the needs are much smaller. In her world... The needs are so great and so extensive, she can never hold on to money because she feels as a Christian called to share when there are needs within her own family and people that are her friends, and it never ends. There's so many needs. Yeah, and then that just gets into the whole thing. You know, didn't Einstein say the most fascinating or powerful uh, thing in math? That's the wrong word, but whatever. It was compounding interest. Yes. Right? So this is what this is what makes Warren Buffett Warren Buffett besides his skills of of finance is that, you know, you get a 5% return, but if you keep getting that for 50 years in a row, it becomes a 500% return. And 
even just little savings, a little couple thousand bucks into your 401k per year, that turns into a full-on retirement fund by the time you're done because of compound interest. But if you feel that you can't you can't save that money, that, I mean, that's, wow, That's that makes perfect sense. Yeah, it's heavy implications, heavy implications. Yeah. So one thing you mentioned earlier when we talked about the guy at Promise, after Promise Keepers, he said, well, I need to be bringing people to Christ. You guys call this the miracle motif. Mm-hmm. Basically, everything would be solved in the world if people just got saved. Where does this idea come from? How does it fit into the evangelical toolkit? When a person becomes a Christian, as we're taught in the Bible, we are renewed. We become a new person. So that new person is to be Christ-like. Christ is without sins. So the assumption is that salvation itself removes our sin. I mean, it, it's it's sort of a bending of it, right? It's rather than a process. And this is part of evangelicalism in America. It is there's a finite point. You you know, we want to know the day and time you made the decision. And at that point, that understanding is now you are righteous. And of course, and a, a different understanding would be okay. Then you begin the process, and Christ starts working with you, and it takes time. But that's that's where this idea comes from. That in a moment, in a flash, as I accept Christ, if racism is a sin of mine, if I'm prejudiced, it's gone. Miracle motif. Suddenly we all get along. How does that motif backfire in a social situation? Well, backfires because again, it short circuits our ability to think about that. Like, let's say that today, every single American became a totally sold-out Christian and even had become fully Christ-like. We still have the segregation everywhere. We still have this massive wealth inequality we've been talking about. How do we address that? It won't matter if we get along fine. We would actually have to know those are issues and figure out how to solve them incarceration rates being so unequal by race. We'd actually have to identify that and work together to say, we got to change that system. But the miracle motif doesn't really allow us to think about systems. I asked you earlier if the financial statistics had changed in the last 20 years in terms of wealth disparity. They have changed a little bit. It's worse now for African-Americans. Has the cultural toolkit changed for white evangelicals in the last 20 years? It hasn't changed, and we know this both through, you know, anecdotal understanding, but there have been follow-up studies since uh, Divided by Faith came out, you know, often called, like, still Divided by Faith, and uh, <laughs> they, they find, if anything, it's become intensified. Hmm. Why do you think that is? When you, uh, when a group feels threatened, and I think that white evangelicals have felt threatened over the past however many years, uh you, you intensify your uniqueness, you know, what makes you your group, your self. So I think that's why. You double down on the group identity, maybe. Yep. Mm-hmm. So earlier you said the reason, the way that your argument of the book goes is basically there is the cultural toolkit and then there is the way that religion is organized in America. Mm-hmm. Um, truth be told, I have not finished the book So I will only be able to ask you about the first part of organization, and then you will have to fill us in for the rest. It's one of those books that I do this sometimes. I don't want books to end, and then I I very slowly get to the end. And I sometimes I never finish them because I'm so sad that they'll be over. This is one of those books. So the first thing that you do talk about and that I have read about is this religious marketplace in America. This is one of the features of the way that religion is organized in America. 
Can you describe the religious marketplace, what you mean in the context of American religion? So let me contrast it with uh, Denmark. Denmark, a little country, right? Scandinavian country. Uh, it's just one example. But you have a state church there. So when you're born in Denmark, you are a member of the Danish Lutheran National Church. Yeah, That's a very common way to organize religion. The U.S., of course, doesn't work that way. We have no established religion. What that does, though, is creates a marketplace. Very American. Everything's a market. So it invites what we call moral entrepreneurs, people who truly believe that they have the uh, right understanding of religion and faith, and they attempt to share that with others. That's the marketplace. There's competition between different denominations, between different congregations for followers. Okay, so that's the religious marketplace. You have an example of a couple in the book, uh, and you admit that they are kind of a, you, you know, an extreme example, but I think it's useful to, to talk through their church shopping experience when they moved to a new city. Can you run us through that? Yeah. When you have a religious marketplace, then what that does is produce consumers. You have providers or suppliers and you have consumers. And we ran into a couple that was really at the extreme, but uh, it illustrates the point of what it means to be a religious consumer. So for them, they moved to a new city. They wanted to find the right church for them. They had already predetermined a set of religious understandings that they believed in. So they went through and they narrowed down. It's got to be of this denominational family. Yeah, it was like the Willow Creek Network or something. Yeah, they liked the Willow Creek Network. Willow so Creek Network. Whatever they approve, then that's going to be our starting list. Yeah. Yeah. They narrowed down to four congregations. They attend those four congregations, but they also interviewed the pastors of these four congregations to make sure to see who had the best fit for their needs. Right. There was no sense of I come to learn it was, I already know, I want to see if you match what I know. First of all, since I haven't gotten through the final chapter, is there another aspect of the way that religion is organized, be it besides the religious marketplace that we need to have filled out for the full argument? Yeah, the reason that the religious marketplace matters then is, as we have consumers, consumers are looking for things that satisfy their needs. And the things that we kept hearing when we asked are, I'm looking for where I feel familiar, where I feel comfortable, where I feel like I fit the culture. And it doesn't take much of an imagination to know we quickly end up in such a thing very racially segregated. So that the system we've created, this marketplace, feeds our segregation. Now the segregation, we go to great lengths to say, matters deeply and profoundly because it creates separate echo chambers for new culture, different cultures to arise, the, the parallel, parallel institutions we talked about. Uh, and, and, and then supporting these cultural tools that are separate. So, you know, if I say to somebody, I don't think there's a deep problem of racism, do you? And if I'm saying that to somebody who's also in the same segregated environment, they say, no, there isn't. And so I say, yeah, I'm right. Mm. Okay, so I think I see how this whole argument works. You've basically got a group of people that are the Americanist of Americans, which includes this sort of rampant individualism and this inability to see systemic causes. On the other side, you have black Christians, black evangelicals, who don't share that, have a different cultural toolkit because of their experience of their people group, and then throw that into the mix with the fact that we have a wide open religious marketplace – People will self-sort. They'll go into like-minded groups. This is what people do on Twitter, too. They follow people that they agree with, right? Yes. And then they have 
books that they'll read and pastors and leaders that they think are thought leaders who are going to be sort of the smartest people in their subculture. They don't see anything wrong. My, the guy in the pew next to me doesn't see anything wrong. And you just have basically a confirmation bias feedback loop. And then they're never going to sit together in the pews. So there's no reason for that to be disrupted. And there you have it. Is that about right? I mean, you could have wrote the book yourself. That was brilliant. <laughs> I could have wrote the foreword, maybe. <laughs> wow. Okay. So that's the argument for the book. I find it incredibly convincing, challenging, and fascinating. We mentioned Trump earlier. You gave us a little bit of an explanation of cultural being backed into a corner or whatever, and then there's Trump the guy. But let's maybe can we take more of what we said and, and, and flush that picture out a bit, the white evangelical and Trump. Yeah. All right. So I'm faced with the choice in the United States. It's kind of interesting if we're going to vote for president once every four years, we just are really given two choices. Yes, we know there's always a third or fourth party candidate, but right. they never win, never have. So ultimately, we're told if you want to throw your vote away, fine. Otherwise, if you want to be serious, you're choosing between the Republican and the Democrat. So we, we look, how do we decide? Well, we all have a set of values, but those values are prioritized in different ways. They're self-serving to our group because that's our understanding of what matters because we're segregated. We think that matters for everybody because in our group, it does matter for everybody. We have So we have that set of values. We're segregated. We take the cultural tools we've been given. We apply them. And for white evangelicals, I mean, let me let me take this further. For white evangelicals, you know, over 80 percent say it has to be Trump based on those factors we just talked about. For black evangelicals, <laughs> it's even more extreme. Over 90 percent say it has to be Hillary Clinton. So their cultural tools and their social isolation and their lived experience put them so opposed. And that's part of why we call the book Divided by Faith. The essence is that America is divided by race. But on every measure that we can conceive of, black and white Christians, evangelicals in particular, are more divided. So that religion intensifies our racial divisions. And we're trying to explain why that is. You were not surprised at all when you saw that 81% statistic, were you? No, we, we knew it would happen. It'll happen again and again. Hmm. It would take something far more significant than a scandal to change the fundamental worldview of these groups of people. Yeah, absolutely. Do you see any reason that your guys' basic argument from 20 years needs any revising, or does it seem remarkably unchanged? <laughs> I, I mean, I'm not trying to make you brag or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, I feel funny saying it, but I, I think it's unchanged. Uh, and I'll say sadly unchanged. I, You know, part of the reason you hope books like this come out and are read that they can be useful and actually lead to some positive change and bring us closer together, especially as Christians— not sure that's happened. Let's talk through a few different kinds of practical steps. So if I'm listening to this and I'm like, I'm convinced this is fascinating, seems right. I do not want to be part of the problem. I've got six different categories here. And then you just give us your thoughts on each place slash neighborhood residence. Yep. Fundamentally rethink where you live. So we're told to find, you know, the kind of the best neighborhood we can afford to get in, a safe neighborhood, a neighborhood that has good schools and such. Think about the racial implications of of what you've been given as as your set of terms by which you're supposed to decide. So as I had said earlier, 
we made a fundamental change to live as the racial minority in terms of where we lived and in every other aspect. How, how has that changed you and your family? In every way possible. It's changed our understanding of who God is. God's a lot bigger than we thought. I think God is more complex than we thought. We have a much deeper understanding about that there's huge segments of the United States where people have to spend their time trying to justify that they're human. That's something that never, ever occurred to me growing up in my white, my white life, completely white life. I mean, just we're human. But this is why we get things like Black Lives Matter. People literally have to say, we matter. We really are people. We really have a right to be here. That's been a fundamental change for us to understand. I don't know what other cities are like, but in Seattle right now, uh, is something because of reading your book, I've been kicking this around, the idea of moving to a neighborhood where whites are not the majority. I don't know that there is anywhere we could move where we would not be contributing to gentrification that is sort of tearing the city apart for those communities. Have you guys come across any kind of resources for that or, or a rule of thumb that might help someone who who is interested but is worried about that? Yeah, great point, because in many ways, gentrification, you know, is an ever-increasing issue in Seattle is a great example of that. We have two rules of thumb. So one is we look, when we make these moves, and we move to several cities under this directive, we make sure we're not moving, if there is such a neighborhood, and there always has been today, where there isn't gentrification. Like, we're... Hmm. I mean, for most of our children growing up, they were literally the only white children, right? So we weren't part of gentrification. We were the oddity. Another uh, thing to look for is, are there middle class minority neighborhoods? Because they're not going to be gentrified in that sense. And you can move there and still going to have a complete change of life experience, but not be contributing to the issue you're talking about. Hmm. That's great. Uh, let's move to that related, that oh-so-related issue, which is schools, your local schools. Uh, how do you recommend that people think about this? So schools, we had a directive to desegregate schools back in the 60s, and it happened. Fits and starts, but by all measures, we got less and less segregated until about 1990. Because the, the law actually said that you're under this directive – for a certain, if you can show for a certain number of years you made the good faith effort to integrate, you no longer have to do so. So since about 1990, we have continued to resegregate once again. We're now back to levels that we were in the 1960s. So one of the things is to fight that because again, that has a lot of destructive, harmful consequences. Is the segregation in our school? So it's going to school board meetings and challenging why. And of course, they're always going to say because our neighborhoods are segregated. But you can actually determine that. They kind of gerrymander often which neighborhoods are assigned to which schools. Right. So you can constantly kind of keep the pressure on and question it. And speaking of, <laughs> I mean, I think that public school funding is like maybe one of the very best examples to push back against this individualism in, in in American, in really just in in white Americanism, which is that everyone is simply acting under the guise that they want their kid to go to the best school with the best possible funding. And when you get a bunch of individuals doing that, you end up with a system. There's just no way around it. Yeah, that's right. Following the same purpose. 
And who who gets to win in that system? Whoever has the most resources and connections. Right, exactly. What about media habits? I've started listening to the Pass the Mic podcast with Jamar Tisby and Tyler Burns. But that's very little. That's one thing. What do you recommend that people do in terms of their media consumption? Just what you're starting to do, which is to change them, diversify them. I think (laughs) – I'll show my age, but I had to force myself – to listen to like hip hop. That wasn't what I'd grown up with. I didn't understand, but I said, this is a major type of music for a whole group that I am trying to understand better. I need to listen. I had to force myself to watch television shows because wouldn't you know it, by race, we watch very different television shows. You know, we take the ranking of the top 20 shows. They don't overlap very much unless there's an interracial cast. Right. So it was a conscious decision to try to Make sure I'm listening to music, watching television, podcasts nowadays that aren't led by whites. Not probably many of us are in this position, but some of us are employers. Mm. And so if we are in a position of hiring people, what's one way we could think about this? You can institute what we've done here. We call it the Rooney Rule. It's what the NFL uses, which says when you interview for a new position in the the NFL, it's only for head coach. Here it's what we apply it to hiring professors. You must bring a person of color among the three people you interview because what happens is that on paper, oftentimes, a person may not seem to fit all the qualifications. And so they never get a chance to bring their whole self. So we are requiring that. And partly because we want to diversify and we think this gives us a better chance and we're finding that it is helping us. We're hiring people that otherwise wouldn't have even been interviewed, but they're wholly qualified and they're doing great for our student body. Last question, the church, which is the cover image of the book and sort of its ultimate focus. And this is a big one, man. Don't mess with my church friends. Don't mess. Don't mess with my Seattle brunch after church, uh, where, where ironically I end up ordering Southern food, um, (laughs) cheesy grits and stuff. How should we be thinking about this, either in terms of our own church initiating something or if we're if we're in a spot where we're probably going to move churches anyway, should, do we consider an Asian-American church, an African-American church? What do you say to people on this issue? So biblically, it'd be hard to find support for church being a social club. We use it in part that way because it's one of the areas that Americans make connections socially. Yeah. But it can't be your driver. So with that in mind, that's exactly what I'd say. What most people will say is we need to figure out how to open our church up to other folks to diversify. What I will say is the better answer is you need to figure out how to go to a church where you're the minority. That's how we will most efficiently, effectively diversify. And there's a problem that that overcomes, which is the problem we're seeing. We have seen more diversity in churches over the last 20 years, but it's only in one direction. It is people of color coming to white-dominated churches that still stay white-dominated churches, asking those people of color to accept white ways, whereas white folks are not showing any evidence that they're willing to put their own culture on the back burner and learn from others. And even that one-way diversification, it does appear to already be dying out since Trump. I mean, there are a lot of people of color leaving those white evangelical churches. So it, it didn't last. It didn't last. I've done a couple interviews like with the Wall Street Journal and some other newspapers featuring exactly that, that 
folks of color after this election just said, I'm done, and they're leaving those churches. Man, Dr. Emerson, you are the provost of a college. You've got work to do. But thank you so much for your time. This is truly one of the favorite conversations I've had in the last few years. And maybe we'll have you back on again later. Well, it's been an honor, and um, thanks so much for the opportunity. In the show notes, we've got a link to their book, Divided by Faith, a link to the Pass the Mic podcast, which is run by two Christians of color. I love it. It's a great additional perspective on the world, uh, different from my own. There's a link to the Patreon, two bonus episodes, Facebook group, Matt's AMA this Friday. Share these episodes. Please let me know how that goes. And I want to hear from you. Email me. Who should I interview? What are you wondering about? You have permission podcast at gmail.com. Depolarized listeners, thank you for hopping on the YHP train again with us. YHP train? I'm not going to use that again. See you next week.